James 1, we've been in the book of James here for a few weeks, and Paul um, Jorgensen, who's a part of our teaching rotation, teaching team here at Living Stones, uh, brought the word last week. And uh, I want to start us with this verse. We've read this uh, before, our first week actually, James 1, 2 through 4. And it says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Perhaps, guys, what God has for us in the book of James is to test and to develop our faith, your faith and my faith. So I want to encourage you today, as we dig into the word of God, to listen, to lean in, to open your heart, and allow the Holy Spirit to work in you to grow and to become more spiritually mature and more complete as a follower of Jesus. Uh, if, if you've been with us any time over the past few weeks, you've heard me uh, share this, but the book of James is the first letter written in the New Testament. It's written by Jesus' brother, James. James' parents were Mary and Joseph. And James became a leader uh, of the early church in, New, in Jerusalem and was writing to a dispersed, a scattered group of Christians living unsettled and persecuted in a culture much opposed to the faith that they were trying to live out. James cut to the chase in this letter. He was straight to the point and he was writing this, like I said, to believers, to followers of Jesus. And I believe that it's just as timely for us today in February of 2024 as it was when it was written nearly 2,000 years ago. What I love about the book of James is that he's very clear. There's not a whole lot, of, he doesn't leave a whole lot of room for interpretation. And so we're going to jump into James chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. You can grab a Bible or find it on your Bible app. Um, I'm going to be referencing these scriptures throughout, but they won't always be up on the screen. And so I'd encourage you to, if you're a note taker, take notes as well. All right, James 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not, has, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not murder, or if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy 
will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true, that it is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And Lord, as we open it now, we, we trust that it will do those things in our lives as we open our hearts to you. God, to give us humble hearts to receive uh, your word today. God, I pray that you would speak through me right now. Um, Lord, we are grateful that we can gather in the name of Jesus here in Cocado, Minnesota, that we can freely worship, that we can freely learn, freely declare the truth from your scripture. So God, may we do that uh, with boldness, but with compassion and with mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we need to first understand what James is talking about here when he says favoritism. So the biblical stance of favoritism is this. We just read about it and throughout Scripture. There are, there are verses that say this, but uh, Scripture does make it, it, it pretty clear for us. God, our Heavenly Father, he shows no favoritism. He shows no partiality, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 2.11. And as his followers, we're called to emulate or to imitate him. And therefore, as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't always do this very well, do we, guys? Um, we are to show no partiality. Now remember, he's writing this to the church. He's writing this to people who are already following Jesus, and yet it was a problem. It is a problem that seems to seep and creep into uh, even the church, and that's not what God wants. So the definition of favoritism, in case we need to clear this up. Favoritism is the unfair preference for one person or group over another, and it's based on subjective criteria rather than objective merit or need. I came across this quote this week from a guy named Jeff Stott. He says, favoritism is to give preference to one person or group over others with equal claims. With equal claims. Now, there are times when we treat um, someone differently because of who they are or the position that they have. For instance, uh, I, I was a kids pastor for about seven years, and I love kids, and I love um, coming alongside kids and seeing them grow. But I do have four favorite kids, right? My children, right? Because I'm their dad. They don't have an equal claim as any other kid, right? Same with my wife, Austin. Um, I love my brothers and sisters in the Lord, but guess what? She's my wife. I'm going. She does not have an equal claim on my life as you as my brothers and sisters do, right? Um, I am committed to her. I give her more time, attention. The way I treat her should be um, better than the way I treat anybody else because she's my wife. But for us in the church, equal claims means we are all created in the image of God. We are all image bearers. So what is wrong according to the book of James is showing favoritism in the church based on external judgments, personal history, and preferences. Now, pray that these things aren't said of Livingstone's church, but we need to be diligent. We need to be proactive. We need to be aware 
that these are things, favoritism and, and the examples that I'm going to share, are things that um, we naturally can struggle with. And so we need the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So here are some ways that we show favoritism in the church. And this isn't a comprehensive list. You guys are probably going to think of a lot more. <clears throat> we show favoritism based on socioeconomic bias, giving preferential treatment to individuals based on their financial status or their job titles. Maybe a clique or an exclusive group. Forming closed groups based on personal interests, age, marital status, or background, which can make others feel left out or undervalued. Racial and ethnic preferences, subconsciously or consciously, gravitating towards those of the same racial or ethnic background, which can lead to segregation within the church community and hinder the church's call to be a diverse body of believers. Maybe it's uh, our leadership selection. Churches sometimes struggle with this. Choosing leaders based on charisma, appearance, or personal connections rather than spiritual maturity, character, or the ability to serve effectively. Or maybe, like in a community like us in the D.C. area, there's history that we show favoritism towards. For those who have grown up in this area and are now living out your adult life in this area, you might consider people who maybe have a reputation from years ago, whether that was a long time ago or more recently. And then on Sunday, you find yourself worshiping in the same room as them. But it's hard to let go of that reputation that you know of that person or maybe vice versa. Or maybe it's someone you grew up who grew up in uh, such and such a family, right? Uh, with a particular last name. But now here you are coming to worship the same God, to learn about the same God, um, not only the same God, but the one true God who has brought you both from death to life and has bought you with his blood through son Jesus. Or maybe it's just in the way that we respond to needs as a church. We show favoritism. Prioritizing assistance or support to those who are more prominent or well-liked within the church while neglecting or overlooking the needs of others who might not be as well-connected or visible. That's why we're doing this garage and no sale. We want to get the word out uh, for those people who have a need who would like to, who would be blessed, but we don't want to make it about us. We don't want to, we don't want people to, to just spread the name of living stones, right? We want people to feel and know and experience the love of God through the people of God. And that's a fine balance, you guys. It's a fine balance for us um, as a church, but here's the deal. Uh, God shows no favoritism, and, and he doesn't love one particular church over another church in our local community. All right, When we are preaching the word of God and the gospel, and, and God is using that to rescue people out of eternal separation and bringing them into his forever family, that is something that we celebrate um, no matter what the name of the church is. Those are some examples, but how, how do we as a body and how do we as individuals overcome favoritism that's kind of what we're going to camp out in during the rest of our time kind of have two points all right i'm trying to simplify it for us the first thing we need to do to overcome favoritism is we need to recognize favoritism for what it is according to the word of god it is a sin recognize it as sin the first step in overcoming favoritism is acknowledging that yeah we all have 
biases. These can be subconscious or shaped by culture, upbringing, or personal experiences. But none of us are exempt from the pressure of having bias. Verse 1, check it out. Or, sorry, yeah, verse 1 of chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Yeah, I love how James starts this. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, he's saying, hey, as the the people of God, this is a family problem. This is a family issue that we need to address, that we need to talk about. Verse 9 goes on to say, if you show favoritism, you sin. That's very, very clear. If you show favoritism, you sin. I love this this scenario that that James uh, gives to us. Very, very easy to understand. This guy comes into your meeting, our church gathering on a Sunday morning, and he is wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, right? And we give him some special attention. If you show him special attention, say, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man who comes in in filthy clothes, can you just stand here, sit on the floor? Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, maybe we'd say in our in our day and age, we wouldn't do that in the culture we live in. And, and uh I have this vivid memory as a, as a as a kid growing up and this man came into our our church in dirty clothes kind of had a, a smell about him and we had just gotten new chairs you guys like chairs like this but they were blue and they were cool right and um particular individual at the church I mean I was I was middle school uh, he went to an office and he just grabbed regular old chair um and he asked this guy who was visiting if he could sit on this chair because it didn't, you know, it didn't have a cushion on it, it didn't have fabric on it. And that's always stuck with me um, that we could value, even in that scenario, value a chair above a soul, above a person, and actually ask them, can you just sit kind of in the corner in this, on this old office chair? Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Oftentimes, those in financially strapped situations see their need for a rescuer more than people who who maybe don't have that that felt need or experience. Jesus talks a lot about this in scripture and we're not going to we're not going to dig into it all today. But I have a question. Whether it's in this story there is he's comparing the poor and the rich. Uh, but we have different things that we gravitate towards or discriminate against. And I'd like you and I've been doing it this week, to reflect on your interactions, ask yourself, am I treating some individuals differently based on their appearance, their status in the community, or their background? We have to know that favoritism is considered a sin, and God's Word says that we should flee from temptation, that we should flee from sin. So favoritism falls into that bucket. The second thing is this. 
So we recognize it for what it is in the eyes of God. It's a sin, and our sin separates us from God, right? Our second thing is this. Remember mercy. The biblical definition of mercy is the gift of God's undeserved kindness and compassion. So first, we remember the mercy that we have received from God in our life as recipients of God's mercy, the undeserved kindness and compassion that comes from him. You want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Ephesians 2, chapter 1, or sorry, Ephesians 2, verse 1. This is the mercy that God has shown you and shown me. And we need to remember this as we seek to overcome the temptation of favoritism in the church. I'll say this. We show favoritism outside of the church too, okay? Paul, or James is writing to believers specifically about the church, but if we can't get it right in the church, which is the witness of God at work to a lost and broken world, if we can't be humble enough to, to work on these things within the church, what is our witness outside of the church, right? So we need to start first in our hearts and then within our community, our, our church community, and then beyond. So we remember mercy. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest... We were by nature objects of wrath. This is what I want us to hear today. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. What's God rich in? He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Maybe today you're sitting in here and you have never received the mercy of God. It is a gift for you today. Okay? Jesus, our Lord and Savior, came to earth. He lived a perfect sinless life and he died on the cross for your sin and for my sin. Because like I said earlier, our sin separates us from God because God is holy. He's perfect. He can't be in the presence of sin. There has to be justice served for our wrongdoing, including the favoritism that we show, which, you know, sometimes we can, we can say, oh, this sin's not as bad as that sin or whatever. Before a holy and perfect God, all of our sin is putrid and detestable. And he died for, Jesus died for your sin, your every sin, past, present, and future. And he rose again from the, from the grave. We celebrate that on Easter coming up in just a short while. And he offers freely his grace, his mercy to all who would believe in him, to those who would call on his name. He gave the right, 
God's word says to become children of God. We remember this mercy that has been given to us, that if we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. We will be rescued. And I love what he says in, in, uh, at the end of verse 5. It is by grace you have been saved. Grace is something that we do not deserve. Mercy is something that, that God gives us that we do not deserve and, and we cannot earn. That's the mercy of God. He can forgive you of your sin and he can wipe your slate clean and you can be born again into the family of God and receive it as his son or his daughter become an heir in the kingdom of God, eternal in heaven. You can receive that hope and that mercy and that love from a heavenly father that chooses you, who wants you, like little kids running to a loving parent or grandparent, God is saying, come to me. I love you. I want to want to hold you. I want to embrace you. I want to forgive you. I want to kiss you. Like all these things that, that a good grandparent or parent would do or a loving aunt or an uncle, right? Like maybe we can picture that in our heads. Like God longs for us to come to him. No shame, no judgment because of Jesus taking the weight of our sin, our guilt, our shame on that cross. So first, in this one of remembering mercy, we remember that we are recipients, that we are first receivers of God's mercy. He did not show partiality or favoritism when he died on the cross. It was once and for all, the righteous Jesus for the unrighteous us, he died so that we could be brought back to God. Let's go to back to James here. James 2 verse 8 says this. This is the second part of remembering mercy. We're first recipients and receivers, and then we are givers. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Royal law, right? The royal law is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, Jesus says, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the royal law. The same mercy that we have been shown, we are to show mercy to all. Regardless of what the world says or our culture tries to push on us, that's what we're called to do. First, remember mercy of God in our life, and then we extend mercy equally to all people for the glory of God, no matter what. I shared this verse earlier, Ephesians 5. says, Therefore, be imitators of God. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are to be living sacrifices, walking for the glory of God as a testimony to the world. Why do we do this? Well, Jesus tells us to. God's word tells us to. In Romans 12, verse 9, it says this, Be devoted to one another 
in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Then it goes on in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. As followers of Jesus, those words should hit deep. That should cause us to slow down a bit and do an assessment of our own lives. Or how am I doing in that? Within my family, within my church family, in my community, my circle of influence, am I honoring one another above myself? Am I seeking to live in harmony? Am I, am I walking in humility? Am I conceited? Am I prideful? We remember mercy and we extend mercy. Jeff Stott, who I quoted earlier, he will put this up on the screen. It's a quote from him. Because mercy is compassion. Mercy reaches out to help those who have a need. Mercy is what causes you to love your enemy. Mercy is what motivates you to help a stranger. Mercy is kind when others are unkind. Mercy is loving when others are unloving. Mercy treats everyone equally when you are not treated, treated equally. Any selfish person can show favoritism, but it takes a transformed heart to demonstrate real mercy, he said. Mercy is your weapon against favoritism. I'd write that one down if I were you. Mercy is your weapon against favoritism. The call to, favorite to, to overcome favoritism is not just a call to our personal holiness, walking with the Lord, but a communal witness, like a together witness of God's Holy Spirit power. As we strive to love one another without partiality, we become a more authentic, a more real reflection of the kingdom of God here in the Dasso Cucado area and abroad, a place where every person is loved, is valued, and is included for the glory of God. Jesus, when we're talking about the royal law, Jesus had these very strong words to say in John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give you, he said, love one another. Jesus' words here, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. All right, I have a picture here. Put that picture up there, Shane. Who knows where this is? You got to say it out loud if you have any guesses. This is in Minnesota. That's my hint. Anybody know? Not two harbors. Nor more north. Grand Marais. This is the Grand Marais Harbor, okay? Who has been to this place? Well, quite a few of us have been here. Never, maybe never seen it from this angle, right? Um, earlier this week, uh, the Livingstone staff team and I were, were gathering, and we were talking about the kind of church that, we, that 
we believe God wants living stones to be. And I, I told everybody they could only use an H word. Like they had to, uh, a word to describe living stones. Like someone said home. Someone said hospitable. Um, the words kept coming, coming, coming. And, and this is one that I had thought about it as I was, I pre-thought, you know. Uh, harbor. The purpose of a harbor, there's this man-made structure at the end, right? These big cement barriers and all these rocks. And the harbor is created, it's designed to help boats and ships and other seafaring vessels withstand the storms, okay? When the, when the wind comes and, and these raging waves are coming, they break on the other side of the harbor and protect better that which, was, which is in the harbor. And that's the kind of church that we want to be, Living Stones, we want to be a harbor. We want to be a safe place. We want to we want to be hospitable. We want to be a home. But we want people, we want the church to come into this building on, on the weekend and realize that there are a lot of storms going on in life, that there's a lot of wind and turbulence. But you can come in here and you can feel cared for and loved and built up and encouraged. But just like the boats in the harbor, they weren't created to stay in that harbor, right? Eventually, they are sent back out, right? And as followers of Jesus and as a, as a church of living stones, we come and we gather in here and, and everybody is welcome, okay? Everybody is welcome through the doors of Living Stones Church to feast on the word of God, to worship together, to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, and then to be sent out into a hurting world, into uh, situations where there seems like there might be no hope because apart from Christ, there is no hope. We believe that for our community, that, that the gospel is the hope of the world. Amen. We believe that with apart from Christ, we are helpless, hopeless little sheepies wandering around with no way to go. And we jump into crevices, we fall off like two little sheep, right? Like jump off cliffs, right? Without our good shepherd. And we, myself and us as a church, like we long to be a harbor place where no matter your last name or your history or what you do for work or your family dynamic or your race or your background or fill in the blank, you are welcomed here without partiality. We remember mercy that was given to us, hopeless sinners. And then we extend mercy because that is what Christ calls us to do and what he embodied and emulated. We're going to sing a song. I'd like to invite you to stand. It's called God of Revival. It says, We've seen what you can do, O God of wonders. Your power has no end. The things you've done before, in greater measure, we believe you will do again. That's our prayer for this morning. Let's just sing out and reflect on that today. <laughs>